from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. Posons-nous sérieusement la question de l'avenir que nous voulons et ayons tous ensemble le courage de le construire. Für uns in Deutschland ist das Bekenntnis zum vereinten Europa Teil unserer Staatsräson. A strong united Europe is a necessity for the world because an integrated Europe remains vital to our international order. This is the moment for Europe to lead the way towards a new vitality. Hello and welcome to the Centre for European Reform podcast. I'm Rosie Georgie, the CER's media coordinator and host of the Ask the CER podcast. Today's episode is in a different format though. It's the first of two which use the audio from our annual Ditchley Economics Conference, which we held in Oxfordshire in November. Before we kick off, we'd like to say thank you to the City of London Corporation and the European Climate Foundation for their help in supporting the event. This year's conference could only focus on one thing. The politics of climate change. It coincided with the final weekend of the UN's climate change conference in Glasgow, COP26, which brought together 200 countries to set out plans for keeping global warming well below 2 degrees Celsius, preferably 1.5 degrees. But in the absence of a formal global accountability mechanism for climate action, how can we ensure that everyone delivers on their pledges? Should the EU and the West be using more coercive measures for countries to change their behaviour? How can we minimise the unequal impact of climate action policies? These were some of the questions asked and some of the themes that we'll touch on today. In the first half of the episode, you're going to hear remarks from Susie Kerr of the Environmental Defence Fund, the European Commission's Ariana Venini, Beata Javorsic of the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, and the World Bank's Stefan Allegat. In the second half, I'll speak to my colleagues John Springford and Elisabetta Cornago for their takes on the issues raised. First, Susie set out the basics of how countries can cooperate at a global scale. There are three elements she saw as crucial for effective global climate action. Because we cannot have an effective global enforcement mechanism, and that is even clearer uh, in our current geopolitical environment, climate cooperation among countries and also among non-governmental actors, such as companies and finance providers, requires three things. So the first is a focal point or agreement on how much emissions effort there should be in total and how mitigation, or you could think of it as the cost of mitigation, should be shared across countries. What is necessary, and we're getting closer to agreement on that, and what is fair and feasible in terms of the distribution of the effort and resources across countries. The second thing is the ability to observe the effort that countries put into mitigation. We need to have this so that we can facilitate rewards and punishments effectively and, and push and pull each other towards where we know we need to go. Observing effort is not the same as observing emissions because many factors drive those and those factors vary from country to country. The third thing is mechanisms for rewarding and punishing countries to encourage others to move towards the focal point and having willingness to impose those rewards and punishments. So rewards can include payments through carbon markets and punishments include instruments like border carbon adjustments. So we need goals, ways to monitor policy efforts and rewards and punishments to get countries to do what is necessary. Susie mentioned border carbon adjustments, which essentially put a levy on imported carbon emissions. In July, the EU unveiled its proposal for its very own carbon border adjustment mechanism, and on the panel, Ariana explained how this will work in practice. 
The carbon border adjustment mechanism ensures that an equivalent carbon price will be paid by domestic and imported products in specific sectors, which are cement, iron and steel, aluminium, fertilizers and electricity, therefore ensuring a level playing field. These are sectors that um, rarely affect least developing countries. Uh, the target uh, group of countries is rather um, a middle income one. Uh, it has also been designed as a system in a way that, of course, in the future, uh, other sectors could be included, um, sectors and products, and uh, as well as uh, indirect emissions, as the current system only targets direct uh, emissions. The system will impose a charge on imports based on the European Union's determined carbon price according to the carbon content implied in their production. But where it can be proven that a carbon price has already been applied in the country of origin before import into the EU, the import charge will be reduced commensurately. The cross-border adjustment mechanism we must take into account will only come into force on 2023. But for the first three years, no charges will be imposed and the focus will be on giving time to both the business and the governments of the third or party partner countries to adapt to what we think is absolutely essential, which is a rigorous reporting and monitoring system. And the revenue collection only start in 2026. In terms of justifying the implementation of a carbon border adjustment mechanism, Susie viewed one as a punishment for a lack of global cooperation, whereas Ariana saw the value of one in avoiding what's known as carbon leakage, which is where a production process moves abroad to avoid, say, the EU's carbon prices. Here's Ariana. This happens when companies transfer production to places where decarbonization requirements are less strict, or when European Union products are replaced by more carbon intensive imports from these places. And as a result of this, there's an increase of emissions in those countries to which production is moved, thus leading to a global increase of emissions. But Susie argued, that the role of carbon leakage as a contributing factor to climate change is often overstated. These carbon adjustments are often framed in terms of avoiding leakage or emissions movement across countries. And they may have some effect on that, but there are many drivers of leakage. And, and in my opinion, little evidence that it's actually a serious issue. But regardless of the justification, how effective actually is a carbon border adjustment mechanism? The EU's own proposal will target steel production and power generation among other industries. Beata used coal and steel in Europe and its neighbourhood as an example of how difficult it will be to decarbonise these sectors. But she also explained why a carbon border adjustment mechanism may be a powerful tool in exporting countries dependent on the EU market. Um, so think about Eastern European EU member states. Um, they have benefited greatly from their ability to sell manufacturing goods to the rest of the EU, and that has served them very well during the pandemic. Um, on average, manufacturing sector accounts for a larger share of GDP than in countries of similar level of income. But 
coal accounts for a large share of electricity production, three quarters in Poland, a large chunk in Czech Republic and Bulgaria. And what that means is that increasing carbon prices, which will be inevitable in the EU if we are going to make progress on the path to net zero, means that these countries will either lose competitiveness as manufacturing locations, or they will have very powerful incentives um, to engage in low carbon transition. And of course, you know, the EU funding including just transition fund um, will help to do that. Now let's think about countries which are outside of the European Union. Think of Mongolia, a third of total exports is accounted for by coal. Bosnia and Herzegovina, 2.5% of total employment in the country and 2% in Kazakhstan is linked directly or indirectly to coal. So the scale of the challenge is big. Um, of course, you know, coal miners are a well-defined group. You can help them, you can take care of them, but it's often not the issue of coal miners. It's the whole region or even neighboring regions which are serving the, uh, the coal mining ecosystem. Now, these countries, some of them, uh, those that export to Europe will be probably hit by the carbon border adjustment mechanism. Um, and that's going to be a big challenge. Steel production is three times as carbon intensive in Russia as it is in the EU, twice as carbon intensive in Kazakhstan. So these countries will be hit hard. On the other hand, Morocco and Tunisia have low carbon intensity of steel production than the EU, thanks to renewables. So. I think the carbon border adjustment mechanism is going to make a big difference. For some countries, it will create a very powerful incentive to use uh, green credentials to create a source of comparative advantage. Other countries may choose to redirect their exports somewhere else. Uh, obviously, that may be easier for larger countries rather than, you know, for small countries like Western Balkans that are very highly dependent on the European market. So I think they, they will have to adjust while um, Russia will have other options. Beata also highlighted a potentially very important channel through which an EU carbon border mechanism could work. Companies in countries exporting to the EU would try to lobby their government to implement more ambitious domestic climate policies. This argument is similar to why high European or US standards in product regulation get adopted around the world. So here, coming back to the issue of incentives, uh, carbon border adjustment mechanism is going to create a powerful incentive for exporters to lobby their governments to engage in green policies. Because if you are exporting, often it may not be practical to have two types of production lines, you know, one for exports, one for domestic market. In the initial period, the clean line for export markets may be more expensive. So in your domestic market, you are going to be undercut by local firms which are not subject um, to those green requirements. And that means that you will have a powerful incentive to lobby your governments to raise standards so that everybody is um, subject to the same rules. But applying economic coercion in the form of carbon border tariffs is only one part of the solution. 
How should the overall burden of the global transition towards net zero be shared? Susie spoke about the broad global agreement that the amount countries should be asked to contribute must depend on what they're reasonably able to do. So there is a general agreement that richer OECD countries should be supporting the least developed countries. And there's probably some agreement on which countries are not pulling their weight as much as others. For example, maybe this is a little contentious, but Sweden is probably a leader relative to a country like Australia when you think about what they could reasonably be expected to do given their level of income and resources. Susie recognised that a carbon border adjustment mechanism and other trade-related levers like this are important to encourage greater carbon mitigation in targeted countries. But she expressed concerns about the inequalities that they can create. Here's Susie. They can also be highly inequitable, and that's a real challenge to, to their ultimate effectiveness. They transfer resources towards the countries that impose them, which seems perverse because these countries are often the richer countries. United States would collect revenue if they have a border adjustment. They may also penalise countries who are struggling to reduce emissions, but they face barriers that might be non-economic. They could actually make it harder for those countries to mitigate. So they could be penalising countries that are unable to respond. That's not helpful. Susie also looked at some of the options discussed to make sure carbon border mechanisms are fairer to poorer countries. But she didn't come away convinced that these options are actually useful. So two options that have been proposed in response to this recognised problem. One is that you can exempt the lowest income countries. And that might be fair, but it doesn't help them move towards a clean economy, which is what we're ultimately trying to do. A second option, in line with some proposals from the International Monetary Fund, would be to expect different carbon prices or different intensities of of climate effort, depending on the income level of the country. If carbon prices can be implemented and are related to effective carbon prices, this could work. But it's still inefficient because these low-income countries will lag in the low emissions transition, and that will be damaging to them as well as to others in the world, even if they have low-cost mitigation options. And the instrument will offer them no resources, financial or technical, to help them catch up. Punishing countries who are lagging through border carbon adjustments is also less credible as a way to facilitate cooperation than rewarding those who do well, because it's politically attractive for the punisher to do that. The country gets trade protection and they get revenue. So applying these sorts of border carbon adjustments doesn't really clearly signal the country's commitment to cooperation. That means it's less likely to elicit reciprocal cooperation. So what does Susie recommend instead? She suggested the creation of a club of countries, or indeed companies, which would agree to a fair and effective carbon price range that is proportionate to members' ability to reduce emissions as a means of effective climate cooperation club of countries that all impose border carbon adjustments on those outside the club doesn't really reduce these problems. But what about instead a club of countries, or this could be companies, who agree to higher levels of ambition, or at least closer to those that would be effective in limiting climate change to 1.5 degrees, and levels of mitigation costs for each country within the club that are considered fair among the countries involved? The club could jointly agree to an efficient, common, effective carbon price range. 
The club could impose border carbon adjustments on rich countries who are egregiously lagging and outside the club, but it could also enable poorer countries to join by creating positive rewards that make it worthwhile for them to accelerate their climate mitigation. Having a club that's smaller than the United Nations as a whole reduces the technically possible scope for positive cooperation, and this is a global problem, but it avoids being held back by those who don't share views on what's fair or about sharing of data and increasing transparency. A club like this could agree on mechanisms for high integrity crediting of reductions in developing countries. If developing countries with large production of leakage prone goods, such as steel, aluminum or cement, are enabled to join and to significantly increase their domestic mitigation effort, then the leakage problem and competitiveness problems would also be reduced. Susie finished by underlining the importance of creating a positive spiral of reciprocal climate cooperation, of which economic coercion does play a part, but just a small one. So overall, what we're trying to do is create a positive spiral of cooperation and reciprocal cooperation. So coercion may have a small role in that, but enabling mitigation and building confidence in cooperation is is much more important. So we know that poorer countries will have a harder time becoming greener, but they will also be hit hard by climate change itself. For example, rising temperatures and changing rainfall patterns from climate change will put already warm tropical latitudes like Africa under increasing stress. The World Bank has looked closely at the impact of climate change on poorer regions. To explain some of their findings, we invited Stefan onto another panel. He discussed the issue of food security. I wanted to mention food security, of course. Uh, climate change will make food production much more difficult in the tropics. Um, Africa is really the place where we expect the largest drop in yields. If you look at global averages, this might be compensated with higher yields in very high latitudes. But for, for countries that will be experiencing a drop in, in food production, it, it makes the dependency to imports much larger. And this dependency, if we're thinking in geopolitical terms, of course, is not a very comfortable place to be, uh, especially for something as essential as food. Uh, the world has a sort of a, a bad track record at uh, maintaining the functioning of food markets in times of crisis. So as, as recently as, as 2010, when the big droughts and, and fires affected Russia, uh, immediately export bans were implemented, uh, which for African countries especially led to a big increase in food prices. You have the shock, the physical impact of climate change or an extreme event, but very often a lot of the impact is the magnification through bad policies and bad response. And there is a lot of room with better responses to better manage those shocks. Stefan went on to caution that especially in developing economies, we can't just look at climate change in isolation. Here's Stefan. If we look only at the role of climate, uh, we're also very likely to miss the point. Climate stresses are just happening on top of many other stresses. Um, population growth in Africa, for instance, is such a stress on the environment and the economies that we, we can't think of the climate change challenges without uh, looking at them in the context of, of population growth, but also technological change and the fact that some of the uh, options to create jobs and to uh, exit from poverty that we saw happening in Asia uh, based on, on manufacturing and the, and the job it produces driven by exports, um, it's, it's a little bit uncertain how those uh, manufacturing jobs and those export opportunities will be open to 
African countries in the next decades. And again, this interacts with, with climate change challenges and agriculture, and only by looking at those different uh, trends together, we can really understand what are the risks. One example of climate change interacting with other economic goals is energy supplies. Decarbonizing existing energy production is not enough, he argued. If you look at North Africa and, and Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, in those places, I mean, you, you have a population that is very young um, and will need opportunities and, and employment. And, and energy is critical for creating those jobs. So um, as we look at climate change, we have to think not only about decarbonizing development, but also achieving our objectives in terms of bringing energy access to those population, uh, including the poorest, and not only energy access in the sense of two white bulbs and a plug to charge an iPhone, uh, we need to run factories in those countries. It was super difficult to imagine that 10, 15 years ago, but today in those places, renewable energy is the cheapest source of energy anyway. So in a way, it's much, much easier to do now, but there will be some hard impact. To finish, Stefan explained how in some ways the impact of climate change might not be negative, but he argued that ultimately it's the right policy and planning that will be the decider of this. Um, we have a report recently at the, at the World Bank that about 200, 250 million people would be moving inside their own countries by 2050 in response to, to climate change. We haven't done the same estimate for external migration, international migrations, but of course this will happen. This can be a chance, a way for people not to live in the places that will become very hard to live in because of climate change. So it could be a, an adaptation mechanism, or it can be a disaster of millions and hundreds of millions of displaced people. And, and that's, you have the stress and, and the difference between the positive and the negative will be in how we manage that and, and how early we anticipate it. And with me now to build on some of those comments from those sessions are John Springford, the CER's Deputy Director, and Elisabetta Cornago, Senior Research Fellow at the CER. Elisabetta, I'll turn to you first. So, the EU's carbon border adjustment mechanism has been presented as a tool to address carbon leakage by levelling the playing field between domestic and foreign producers of some goods and materials, since they must all pay the same carbon price. But Susie showed some scepticism about whether carbon leakage poses a significant problem. What do you think, Elisabetta? Is European industry actually at risk of carbon leakage? Thank you, Rosie. So, um, let's remember that today, um, you know, the concerns about carbon leakage in this context stem from, from the fact that in Europe, heavy industry is subject to carbon pricing via the emissions trading scheme or the EU ETS. However, um, today there are existing measures that protect industry against carbon leakage, and these are essentially free uh, pollution permits. This means that to a large extent, industry is getting a sort of a free lunch with respect to carbon emissions. And this free lunch has been offered to industry precisely to protect it from competition from uh, foreign producers who don't face a carbon price. And so the, the amount of pollution permits that uh, industrial players get for free varies according to their exposure to international uh, competition. So I'd say there are no risks right now in the sense that they are already being uh, taken care of, uh, but there are also no incentives for European heavy industry to decarbonize its production as things stand today. So the idea behind CBAM is to gradually start exposing heavy industry to a carbon price in the EU, uh, as is the case for uh, energy generators. And in doing so, substituting then one type of protection from carbon leakage, which is free emissions permits with another that exposes both 
domestic and foreign producers to the same carbon price. And that's the CBAM, the carbon border mechanism. Thank you, Elisabetta. Beata mentioned that the carbon border adjustment mechanism could function as an incentive for decarbonisation and more broadly for climate action in countries that do not yet apply carbon pricing. John, what do you think? Well, it may be that the EU's CBAM proposal has been behind the recent moves by Russia and Turkey to reduce emissions from heavy industry. Um, And that's because those two countries are among the most affected by the mechanism. Uh, And that's because they export loads of steel and aluminium to the EU. And that's obviously welcome. Um, I think there are two issues with the CBAM, though, in terms of its overall ability to be able to incentivize other countries to take climate action. One is that by necessity, it has to be limited to some heavy industrial products because it's far too complicated to impose a CBAM on, say, microchips, because all of the materials that go into microchips are produced in lots of different countries. So working out who's responsible for what emissions for what bit of the microchip is incredibly nightmarish. Uh, So, you know, simplify and do steel and aluminium and so forth. The issue with that is that heavy industry is responsible for a lot of imported emissions to the EU, but not the majority. A lot of it is embedded in food production, consumer durables, other goods that aren't covered. So it might push some big heavy industry exporters to Europe to change, like Russia and Turkey, but lots of countries that are far away from the EU don't export so many of the CBAM affected products. They have weaker incentives. And that's why... um, we can get into this a bit later, but that's why climate clubs that involve lots of countries are better because they make it much more difficult for laggards to simply divert exports to other countries because uh, you know much more of the global economy is essentially imposing penalties on countries that aren't taking climate action. Thank you very much, John. Next, Susie highlighted the somewhat punishing nature of a carbon border adjustment mechanism for countries which don't have a carbon price in place. She argued how this can actually put developing countries at a disadvantage, while revenues from a carbon border adjustment mechanism flow towards countries with ambitious climate action policies in place, which tend to be richer. Elisabetta, in the case of the European CBAM, how much of a burden would it be on developing countries and what could the EU do about this? If you look at volumes of imported goods that would fall under CBAM, uh, in the top 15 countries, most are middle-income or high-income countries, um, with one notable exception, and that's Mozambique, which is quite special in that it exports a lot of aluminium to the EU. But if you look at the most exposed uh, exporters to the EU, the top three are Russia, Turkey, and China. But even though um, uh, lower income countries would likely not be as affected um, looking at rate volumes of the goods subject to CBAM, right, which has, are very specific ones, uh, iron and steel, cement, the administrative burden of CBAM could be problematic uh, in these countries. Um, and this is why in, in, in previous papers that we've published at the CR on, on this topic, we have argued that the EU could consider exempting least developed countries from CBAM or at least setting a minimum threshold of trade volumes under which there is a blanket CBAM exemption. And this could be temporary, um, so to at least set a dynamic incentive for decarbonization, right? We heard Susie before mention that uh, a full exemption does not help poorest countries either. 
Um, but then to make this incentive actually meaningful, the EU should support its uh, developing trade partners in their decarbonization efforts with concrete partnerships um, and, and you know, support uh, programs, investments, and, and it could use CBAM revenues to fund some of these activities. Thanks, Elisabetta. I'll come back to you with another question about developing economies in a moment. John, on the panel at Ditchley, you didn't seem convinced about the potential for the European CBAM to effectively stir up climate action among EU trade partners. Do you think that a climate club, as you touched upon just now, and like the one Susie suggested, which would include rewards as well as punishments, would be a better system to speed up decarbonisation? Would it be politically more feasible? So German Chancellor Olaf Scholz has said he wants the G7 to become a climate club. Um, And the idea dates back to a proposal by the American economist William Nordhaus. Uh, I think he made it in 2015. It's quite similar to the CBAM, except it's not unilateral, i.e. it's not just the EU doing it. It would be a group of countries who would all agree that they were going to have an internal carbon price of, say, $50 a tonne, and they would achieve that carbon price through a a variety of ways, carbon tax, cap and trade, regulate the amount of emissions from power plants or whatever. And then they would impose a tariff on goods coming into the club unless other countries joined it and formed a part of it. So according to Nordhaus's calculations, you'd only need quite low tariff rates to create fairly strong incentives for countries to join. Now at Ditchley, Susie Kerr, who's the chief economist of the Environmental Defence Fund, a US-based NGO, she said that this inherently stick-based approach that Nordhaus suggested should be supplemented with some carrots for two reasons. One is that rich countries are responsible for most historical emissions, so they need to decarbonise more quickly, and a straight carbon club would mean that all countries had to impose pretty much equal carbon prices, whatever their level of development, as per Nordhaus's suggestion. The second is that rich countries should provide funding for poorer countries to be able to access and then deploy green technology. And there's a risk that poorer countries would not join a carbon club without these kinds of carrots. And to his credit, Schultz seems to get that. He said when he was suggesting that the G7 could form a a climate club, he said, and I quote, we are not looking to be an exclusive club. By addressing technology transfer and climate financing, we hope to bring developing and emerging economies on board. Okay, perfect. Thank you, John. Um, Now for a final question, Elisabetta. Stefan mentioned that climate change will have a larger impact on developing countries, particularly in the tropical regions. How can the EU support developing countries in adapting to climate change? So adaptation has started receiving more and more attention in in recent uh, international climate conferences, including at COP26 in Glasgow. And uh, the Paris Agreement says that ideally we should aim for a uh, 50-50 split uh, between uh, finance for mitigation and and finance uh, for uh, adaptation uh, when when we look at the basket of, of climate finance. And adaptation funding should also go towards more vulnerable countries to to climate change, which, as as Stefan mentioned, tend to be concentrated in in the tropical region. But if we look at the latest numbers, the share of climate finance devoted to adaptation is still low, um, around 20-25% of total uh, climate finance. Um, Perhaps there is a positive signal in that the adaptation fund gathered record levels of contributions um, uh, around and at COM26, uh, the EU itself pledged uh, $100 million. 
But more specifically to your question, what can the EU do? Last year, um, the EU presented its adaptation strategy and it pledges to do more internationally, both in terms of climate finance, as we said, so cash, and in terms of supporting partner countries in climate action. So what does that you know, look like? Supporting partner countries means, on one hand, uh, things like helping them prepare nationally determined contributions, so that the climate action plans that countries prepare to show their commitment and then their contribution to Paris Agreement targets, but also things like um, developing adaptation-related policies, um, so um, to increase essentially the, the macroeconomic resilience of, of these countries to, to climate shocks, or also designing policies to promote climate-proof investment. So there's a lot of room for um, sharing know-how, uh, I think, in, in this space. And, 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 and that's where perhaps the EU can also show some um, thought leadership and, and policy development uh, leadership alongside uh, financial flows and, and actual concrete financial support. Brilliant. Well, thank you both very much for those insights. This has been the CER podcast. We'll be posting a second one on the other digitally panels shortly. So do look out for that. And you can also read the report that we just published on the whole conference. Thank you for listening. See you next time. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.